Uh, I told you I'm not preaching today and my heart's full today. I could preach today, but uh, I'm taking a break. This is the year when I'm scheduled to take a sabbatical to get a few weeks off to kind of rest and refresh. I did that back uh, about seven years ago, I guess, and so it's time. The only thing is I don't want to. I don't want to be gone. I don't want to take a break. I don't, I don't want to not be here. So I'm, I started my sabbatical. I'm in it. Last time I was gone away from y'all, this year I'm doing my sabbatical with y'all. Um, so sorry we're not at a beach house together. We're here. Um, but I'm glad, and so I just don't want to miss a thing right now. But um, I have preached a lot, especially since COVID got here. We did four services, and now we've been in three services for a long time. And you need... You need a break from me. I don't need a break from y'all, but y'all need a break from me. And so some of you are back for the first time today, and I'm so thankful that you are. What you may not realize is that God brought a lot of people to Grace Life while you were away. I mean, a lot of people to Grace Life. And one of those people is actually going to preach today, uh, Herb Owen and his wife, Marilyn. God brought them here. Um, Jordan, next week will be your week since God's brought you here. Since I thought I'd tell you that since your dad's here in town today. Uh, <laughs> Um, let me tell you about Herb, and, and this was a cool story. Hannah Fuller, who's uh, in our children's ministry, Hannah worked for nine years at Camp Straight Street, great day camp in Birmingham at Shades Mountain Community Church, and God just transformed Hannah's life through getting to serve the Lord there and got to see God do so many cool things. And so knowing that we're about to have this incredible campus at Shadow Lake, Hannah has a passion, and I'm with her in this, that we want to see God do a, a, a day camp next summer for the people in our communities uh, out at Shadow Lake. It's going to be such a fantastic place to do that. Months ago, Hannah sends me a screenshot of a book that she just bought off Amazon written by a guy who is the expert in church, how to do a church day camp. And she said, I'm so glad I got this book. This is the guy that started Camp Straight Street years ago at Shays Mountain Community Church. This book's going to be a great resource. I said, that's great. I'm glad you got the book, too. Glad there is a book. Who would have thunk it, right? And about a week later, I get an email from this guy who says, hey, me and my wife are really loving to attend Grace Life. We feel like that's where the Lord wants us to be. I just want you to know a little bit about us. And he attached his resume to that, and it was signed Herb Owen, and I thought, that name's familiar. And I look back at Hannah's screenshot of the book. It's the same Herb Owen who wrote the book on day camp, and so I called Hannah, or I sent her, a, I forwarded that message, and I said, Hannah, we don't just have the book of how to do this. We got the guy that wrote the book. He's here. God's brought him, and Herb and Marilyn have not, been nothing but pure joy to us since God's brought him here. I, I want you to hear him teach God's word to you today. He was in children's ministry all the way back to 1971. That's before some of us were even children. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, Herb, that's a long time ago. I told him I was negative three at that time. Um, but you'll know, you'll tell that God has uniquely gifted Herb to share the hope of Jesus with, with children. Um, but he does that also in a way that it affects parents and grandparents. And so you're going to be blessed today to get to hear God's word through him. I just want to encourage you, the, the best, now that I've heard him, like I took a big chance. I've never heard her preach. He's just been hounding me since he got here. We want to serve the Lord. We want to serve the Lord. So last week I said, you want to preach? And he said, sure. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what did I just say? I've never heard this guy preach, and it's three services. And so now that I've heard him one time, here's my advice to you. Just relax and just enjoy uh, getting to hear about Jesus today. And hearing him reminded me of when I used to be in this very spot 
back in the late 90s, and I taught children's church. They would do big church out there, and then they would kick me out. I was too much of a disruption in, in big church, and so I, I would hang out with the children, and I did kids' church right here when this was still a, a gymnasium. And sitting there listening to him, it just kind of took me back, and I felt like sort of a kid again. And I think maybe that's what God would have us to do today, is to see Jesus with fresh eyes and with childlike faith. And so I would just encourage you, maybe take that posture, and you're going to be blessed. Brother Herb, Miss Marilyn, we love you all already. Come on, my brother, and share God's word with us here today. Y'all please welcome Whoa. Mr. Herb. Hey, three services are going to wear you out, man. It's going to wear you out. Good morning. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Oh, since I have parents in Children's Church, I'm going to ask you to sit up straight, put your hands in your lap, look up front, and don't talk to anybody. Don't anybody talk to you. And don't feed the animals. Well, good morning. You know, uh, I've been a children's pastor all my life and started camps all over the place. And I forgot to start my clock. I remember when to stop. Oh, yeah, I can remember to stop. I go 10 minutes past it. But, but anyway, um, <laughs> so where we moved from, we were in northern Virginia. Matter of fact, we could see the Washington Monument on the way to church because we were right there. And I trained everybody to do what I was doing, and I think, I think I'm supposed to go somewhere else. So uh, we made plans. I trained the guy to take over the camp, and we transferred the children's ministry to somebody. And so I wrote several churches thinking I would be working at a church, but God didn't say, don't do that. I mean, he, everywhere I, I wrote, it wasn't quite right. So our son is children's pastor at Shades Mountain Community Church. He has my former job. He does it better than I do. It hurts my feelings. But anyway... Uh, he's over there. So we decided if we didn't figure out anything by July 1st, two years ago, we'd move back here, be near Jonathan, and wait for further instructions from heaven. So we did. And we tried several churches. And finally, someone said, look, you're a visionary. Over there, that guy, Joel, at, do you know him? Well, no. He said, he's a visionary. You will connect. So we came to church the next Sunday. The first time I walked in that door and said, I felt like I had on a comfortable pair of shoes. I said, this is home. So we're so glad to be a part of this and getting to know you and you getting to know us. <clears throat> I want us in our mind to go back before, and it was, well, most of us were born. Um, were any of you alive in 1946? Oh, God, our patriarchs and matriarchs are raising their hands. Good, well, we honor you. Well, anyway, World War II had ended, and the military was sending home thousands of people who had won the war. And they all had something in common. They came home and they had to get a job. Now, my dad was one of them. He was, um, he, he left the Army. He was honorably discharged in 1946 in February, and he came home. And I was born after that, obviously. Well, another guy who was discharged, actually a year before because of an injury, his name was Jack, and he came home, but instead of the traditional getting a job, he decided to run for Congress, which you can do when you're 25. So he got ready, started campaigning, and found that it was, people were not interested. And one of the reasons was he was visiting a lot of people who were blue-collar, hourly wage, the type of people that made America great. And they heard his last name, and they went, oh. They recognized he was front of the, one of the millionaire families out in the suburbs. And they're thinking, what does he know about representing us? And the answer was nothing. So it wasn't going well. So we talked to a guy. He said, I need help. This isn't going. The guy thought, and he said, I'll tell you what. He said, there's a guy in that district. You'll like him. His name is Dave Powers. Go find him, and if you can win him over, you might have a chance. 
So he climbed up, how many steps it was to his apartment, introduced himself, and Dave wasn't too excited either, but two days later he had won his heart and they shook a hand on it, and Dave Powers was with him throughout his political career. And he did get elected to Congress, and he got elected to Congress again, got elected to Congress again, you do that every two years. But then a Senate seat became open, so he ran for Senate, got elected to that, six years later did it again, and then it was the perfect time he decided to run for president. The problem is there were all sorts of things about him that would make people in other con parts of the country never vote for him for president. But he confronted him head on. He had Dave and other people by his side. And when on January 20th, 1961, he stood on the western face of the Capitol, put his hand in the Bible, raised his hand, and said, I, John F. Kennedy, do solemnly swear I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. He moved into the White House. Dave Powers moved into the White House. He had an office in the West Wing. He had two titles. He was the assistant appointment secretary, and he was special assistant to the president. Now, uh, the appointment secretary part meant that anybody who had an appointment with the president, Dave would greet them in the West Wing, make sure they're comfortable. He'd talk to them, find out about them. He'd walk them down the hall, past the, um, this room on the left, which is where the cabinet met, the cabinet room on the left, and the Roosevelt room on the right, and then on into the Oval Office. Everybody who met the president went through Dave Powell. Secondly, everywhere the president went, Dave Powers went. The president went on a trip, he went. The president went to church, he went. Um, their church didn't have a good nursery like ours, and uh, so his wife stayed home with their baby, Caroline, and, uh, but he went to church with everywhere he went. People said that when the president left the residence, Dave Powers was the first person he'd see, the last person he'd see at night. And when the president went to Fort Worth and then Dallas, Texas in November of 1963, Dave Powers was there. They got in a motorcade. The president was here with the governor of the, of the state and his wife. And Dave and another guy, Ken O'Donnell, were in the next car with the Secret Service. And they went through Dallas, turned right into Dealey Plaza, went around. Shots rang out from there, and the president was assassinated before his very eyes. Later that day, he got back on Air Force One with the president's body in a casket. They flew back to Washington. Well, after that had died down, they realized they needed to get a presidential library and museum going. And of course, they had to have Dave Powers' help. So, because he knew everything. I mean, so they worked it out, they got it going, and he became the first curator of the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum. 28 years later, after the assassination. My wife, who's sitting right here, and I and our two boys, Timothy and Jonathan, we were in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. I was speaking at a big kids thing, and we drove because we had time. And then we drove back straight down 95, and when we got to Boston, there was a sign that said Kennedy Library and Museum. I said, oh, well, we got time, let's go see that. So we went in, and we saw the museum. I don't remember much what I saw, but we went to the gift shop. There's always a gift shop. <coughs> And we looked at the stuff, and there was a book about the president called Johnny We Hardly Knew Ye. And I looked at that, and I went, it was written by Dave Powers. I said, wait a minute, I know that name. I saw an interview. Oh, so I bought the books, paperback, and I went out there as a security guard. I said, you know, I know Dave Powers used to be over the museum. Is he still living? And he said, well, I hope so. He's at work today. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> so um, finished, and finally it was time for us to go. We're on the big steps. 
pretty building, and the guard was out there taking a break, and he said, by the way, you asked about Dave Powers? Yeah, he said, that's him right there. I went, okay, my book and I made a straight line. Introduced myself, wanted to get him to autograph my book, and then he said, and I'm going to do this poorly, so if you laugh at me, you won't hurt my feelings. Well, you might, but I'll get over it. He said, oh, Herbert, we should have been here last week. He said, Jockey was here, and Caroline, and John, and Gorbachev was here from Russia. Gorbachev from Russia? Okay. Now, think with me. I held a book on the life and the presidency. He's the guy that wrote it. And you know why? Everything in here, he saw. He was there for all of it. He had witnessed it. He knew these people. He knew everything that happened. Now, I go back 2,000 years. Jesus Christ came to earth. He did his ministry, he died, he rose again from the dead, spent 40 more days with people, sent them out to preach the gospel, he returned to heaven, and they went all over, these apostles and then new believers went and preached. Years passed and finally somebody said, you know, we need to write this down. So people began to write books on the life of Christ and four of them were inspired by the Holy Spirit. One was written by Mark, one was written by John, they were like Dave Powers. Everything Jesus had done, they were there, they saw it. Turn water into wine, they were there. Feed the 5,000, they were there. Lazarus raised from the dead, they were there. Jesus rises from the dead. He met with them that afternoon. Luke, now we're not sure where he came into the picture. We do know he went on missionary trips. And we know Luke was a, a smart guy. He was a doctor. And he wrote somebody, says, I'm going to write a book on all the things Jesus did and taught. And he talked to everybody, got it all right, and he wrote that in the book of Acts. Which leaves Mark. We do not know where Mark entered the picture. In his gospel, something he reports that happened the night Jesus was arrested, that's sort of odd and a strange thing. Why did he put that in there? He says, a young man did something, which you can read it when you get home. And you thought, Mark was the young man. That's the only thing that makes sense. Anyway, Mark went on the first missionary trip with Paul and Barnabas, and somewhere in the middle of the trip, he went home. He gave up and went home. I'm not sure if he was homesick, missed his dog, what, we don't know, but he went back home. Time for the next missionary trip he wanted to go, Paul goes, no way, we're not going to do that again. Now later they were reconciled, but Paul was not taking him. So Barnabas took him, and later Peter took him. And in one of his books, Peter calls Mark his son. Peter was his assistant. He went with him. When Peter told about the life of Jesus, Mark heard it. Today and tomorrow, he heard it over and over and over. When Peter told about the sermons Jesus preached, Mark heard it. He heard everything. And when Mark wrote his gospel, he was writing what he had heard from Peter. As a matter of fact, some people wonder if Peter might have dictated the gospel and Mark wrote it down. That's possible. But it was written under the inspiration of God anyway. And Mark, in the first line of his gospel, tells what he's going to explain. It says, the beginning of the good news, or the gospel, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what he's going to say. He says, now I'm going to show you. He tells us what Jesus did and taught. For instance, uh, after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. Now, remember the holy land that Jesus lived in? That was Galilee, Samaria, and Judea, and then there were other parts all over, but that were the three main ones. So Jesus went to Galilee, and uh, on the Sabbath day, he uh, went into the synagogue, which is what Jews would do, and they allowed him to teach. He was, they saw him as a rabbi, 
But as he taught, the people started going, wow. This guy teaches like he in and of himself has authority, which he did, not like our teachers of the law. And then, in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by an unclean spirit. He said, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus said, be quiet, come out of him. And the unclean spirit shook the man violently as he came out of him with a shriek. And the people went, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He even gives commands to unclean spirits and they obey him. And then Mark has the greatest understatement in the Bible. He says, news about Jesus spread quickly over the whole realm of Galilee. I guess it did. People were saying, did you hear what happened? Well, leaving there, Jesus went with James and John to the home of um, Peter and Andrew. Now, I want to tell you something about that that's interesting. All these things in the Bible happen. I think we do great disservice, especially when we're teaching kids, when we call them Bible stories. That's like calling the events of 9-11 a history story. Or when we call the people in the Bible Bible characters. That's like calling George Washington a history character. Anyway, they went to the house of Peter. Archaeologists dig up things left by previous generations. That's what they do. For instance, I'm wearing a ring that is an exact duplicate of one that was found in Jamestown, Virginia, right in the fort, the first permanent English settlement. Had that not been a successful settlement, we may be speaking Spanish this morning. But it was. Anyway, the archaeologists found this ring, and it has a crest on it, so they thought, huh. And they sent it to England, people that keep the coats of arms. They said, oh, that's the Strachey coat of arms. They went, Strachey. And this ring belonged to William Strachey. He was the secretary of the colony. That's what archaeologists do. Well, archaeologists have dug up and have found the city of Capernaum. There's what they found. It's been straightened up a little bit. At the bottom right is where the synagogue was. Now, the current walls are from a synagogue that was built later on the foundation of the original synagogue. As a matter of fact, people who've been there say that if you go, they take, they've taken some of the floor of the synagogue that was built on top, so you can see the original floor that Jesus walked on. And up a little bit higher, you see something a little bit bigger. It's a house, but it's not like any other house. When they found it, it had been, the walls had been plastered. They had been enlarged. They can tell from this things that they found about halfway in the first century, it stopped being used as a house and started being used as a meeting place. This house in the middle of a neighborhood. And then they found graffiti on the walls, Christian graffiti, and people realized, they turned this into a church. And then several centuries later, they built this octagonal thing on it, and they realized, this must have been Peter's house. And archaeologists basically universally say, now Peter's name wasn't on the mailbox, but Peter's house was there, which is why they kept building churches on it. Well, Jesus went into Peter's house. So when he got there, Peter's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they told him, and he went to her, took her by the hand, helped her up, and her fever left her. And she began waiting on them, which you ladies know mean she helped with dinner, which I guarantee you was fish. That's what they ate. Anyway, after sunset, Mark tells us that they brought to Jesus all their sick and demon-possessed. He healed many with various diseases and cast out many demons. But he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And then Mark says, early the next morning, 
morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Well, then Mr. ADHD himself, the Apostle Peter, gets up, and he got his guy. He goes, where's Jesus? Have you seen him? And they go looking. Where is he? Anybody know where he's going? Where'd he go? Anyway, and they finally find Jesus. And Peter says, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. <laughs> and they did, to the nearby villages. He said, so I can teach there. So Jesus went throughout there teaching and casting out demons, healed some people. A couple of days later, he went back to Capernaum. And uh, when he got there, Mark says, when people found out he had come home, the house was filled with visitors. Now, that was strange. Jesus wasn't from Capernaum. He wasn't Jesus of Capernaum. He was Jesus of Nazareth. But apparently, he used Capernaum as his headquarters for his ministry. And he never owned a house. Where would he sleep? Probably in the house of Peter which is why they really took great respect for that building. Well, one day he was there, and it was packed. I mean, the whole place was packed. You couldn't even get in. It was like going to the best restaurant in town on Mother's Day. People are coming out the door, and they, they just can't go in. Meanwhile, outside, there was a man who was paralyzed, couldn't walk. And he had heard about Jesus. Maybe he was there when he was healing people. Maybe he had been in the synagogue. We don't know, but he knew about Jesus. And he and his friends were talking, and they said, you know, if you get me to that guy, he can heal me. So they went, and they made a cot, and they put him on it, and they were going to carry him to the house. But when they get there, they ain't getting in that thing. It's packed, and people, and they try, there's no way to get in. And they thought, we got to get you to him. And then one of them guys went, oh. Meanwhile, inside, Jesus is preaching the word. And they suddenly start hearing something on the roof. Now, they didn't know about reindeer yet, so nobody thought that, but they heard something on the roof. And then they began to see daylight, and they were taking the roof apart. It wasn't a roof like our roofs. You couldn't do that, but with theirs, you could. And then the hole got bigger, and then they lowered the guy right in front of Jesus. Talk about a scene. Now, let's see who was there that day. Well, Jesus was there. And then the paralyzed man was on the cot. Number one, lowering down, I imagine he was scared to death. He said, don't drop me, please. And he gets there, and everybody's staring at him. He's going, awkward. <laughs> well, who else was there? Well, that was the same people that are here today. That was a group of people who had believed Jesus. They had followed him. They didn't know nearly as much as you and I know, but they had followed him, and they wanted to hear more. Then there was another group that I hope is also here today, people who hadn't followed him, but they were curious. They wanted to know more. If that's you, you came to the right place. And then there was another group over in the corner that was not the happy corner. It was a group of people sitting there like this. <laughs> and they were the Jewish teachers of the law. Their job was to teach people the law of Moses, but they ended up teaching not just the law of Moses, but all these other laws that had been written to tell them how to obey the law of Moses. For instance, Moses said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, so they had a whole list of things that they thought you ought to do to do that. Well, they didn't like Jesus. Matter of fact, if they had had on T-shirts, the T-shirts would have read, not a fan. <laughs> didn't like him. So they're sitting over there. And when the guys lowered down, I can hear them saying to each other, oh, watch. You're going to do one of his healing deals. Here we go. That's not what happens. Jesus looks at the man and says, Young man, your sins are forgiven. Well, they 
blow a gasket. They're thinking, why is this man talking like this? He's blessed me. Nobody can forgive sins but God. Right, but they were missing something. And then Jesus said, why are you thinking these things in your heart? And they probably went, you read his minds? He says, let me ask you a question. Which is easier, to say to him your sins are forgiven or to tell him, take up your bed and walk? He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he looked at the guy and says, young man, take up your cot and go home. My guess is Jesus reached his arm, helped him up, and the guy stands up. He's not wobbling. He takes a big cot and off he goes in front of everybody, and they started praising God. And Mark said that they were saying, we've never seen anything like this. Off he goes. Well, Jesus continues to teach. When we get to uh, Mark chapter 4, Jesus has been teaching all day. It's not like Joel. Think about Pastor Joel. He gets here at 7 for prayer meeting, maybe I know before that. He preaches at 8, 9, 30, and 11, which is me today, come to think of it. But then, this afternoon, he's got what membership matters, and then we've got this... Uh, Congregational meeting later, and then he works with seniors. I guarantee you when he goes home, he's tired. So did Jesus. He was God, but he was very much a man. So he said, he needed a break. He said, there was a boat. He says, let's get in the boat. We'll go to the other side of the lake. So they get in the boat. He goes with the disciples, and they go headed for the other side of the lake. Something happens. A storm comes up. Now, this is not one of these little polite Alabama afternoon thunderstorms, you know, where it clouds up, maybe you hear a little thunder, and then it rains for an hour, and then it stops, and then the clouds go, and the sun's come out, the sun comes out, and the birds keep singing whatever they were singing before. It was not like that. This was the kind of storm that makes every app on your cell phone go crazy with warnings at the same time. This is the kind of storm that makes... Weatherman James Spann, take off his coat, furrow his brow, and tell you to go to the basement and put on the helmet. It was one of those storms. I mean, the boat was going, the boat was going back and forth. Water was washing over it. If they'd have cell phones, the guys would have called their wife to say goodbye. They didn't think they were going to make it. It was awful. They were scared to death. And they looked, and there's Jesus. You know, guess what he's doing? He's sleeping on his cushion thing he found. And they wake him up, they go, hey, we're about to die here, do you care? And Jesus gets up, he rubs his eyes, I guess, and then he goes to the side of the boat. He says two things. This is how the King James Version translates it. It's really good. He says, peace, be still. Or as my grandmother used to tell us, y'all hush up. <laughs> and the storm stopped like that. And Jesus, in his mind, remembers everything these guys have seen, every miracle they've seen him do, every time they saw him cast out a demon, every time they've heard him teach. And he's thinking, they should have it by now. But he looks at them and says, why were you afraid? Do you still have no faith? I wonder how many times God has said that to us. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And Jesus went back to his, his cushion. So they're sitting there. If you think they were scared during the storm, they're really scared. Now, at what just happened, they're going. I can see Matthew looking across the boat to the apostle Peter and goes, Petey, did you see that? <laughs> and Peter looks over at his brother. Andy, did you see that? Andy looks at Thaddeus. Dad. 
And then Mark says, the apostle says something, but somebody had to start it. They look up there and they go, then who is he that the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this man? That is the most important question ever asked on planet Earth. And people are still asking it 2,000 years later. Who is this man? People need to know who Jesus is. Now, Jesus has shown himself to be God, the savior of people. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. He loves people. But there are some people that love his teachings but don't get him. And one of them, you never guess who it was, is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was really smart. He had a problem. He was a child of the Enlightenment, where everything could be explained scientifically. Thomas Jefferson, after he left the White House, went back to his home in Monticello and lived, I think, 16 more years. Did a lot of reading. He read the Gospels. In fact, he got himself four New Testaments. One in English, that's the King James Version. One in the Greek that it was written in. He would have had Erasmus's Textus Receptus Version, because that's the one they had back then. He had it in French. He spoke French. He used to be the ambassador to France. And he had it in Latin, because all the smart people spoke Latin. And what he did is he took, he took the pages. Yeah, there it is. He had pages like this, and he put one column from one version here and one column from one version there, and then on the other page, another column and another column. The first polyglot Bible. Four languages on the page. And then he sent it to Richmond and had it bound, and it came back and looked like this. I've seen it. It's in the Smithsonian Museum of American History. And they put it out every now and then for people to see. And then they did something great. They made a facsimile exact copy. And that's what this is. Now, they didn't paste the, page, the, the verses in. They just printed them. They photographed every page. And in here, you'll find the Sermon on the Mount, love one another, all of that. But what's important is what you don't find in here. Because Thomas Jefferson did not include one miracle, not one thing about Jesus being God, nothing supernatural. Because although he loved the teachings, as a matter of fact, he wrote a, in his own handwriting a title for the book, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what he called it in his own handwriting. He wrote that. And he loved that, but he couldn't accept the fact that Jesus was God. Now, friends, Jesus went through his own whole ministry showing us that he's God. God in human flesh, who loves people, who cares about people. Now, what are we supposed to do about that? I want to suggest four things. First, we are to believe it. Now, a lot of people don't know what it means to believe things. Let me give you a hint. You're sitting down. I think I'll join you. Okay? Um, a lot of people, when they say they believe spiritual things, what they mean is, yeah, I'm good with that. I became a Christian at the end of my junior year in high school. After my senior year, I went to a Christian university. It had 4,400 uh, dorm students that year. And if they sent us all to local churches, we would run off all the people. There wouldn't be room for everybody. So we had a morning worship service at the campus. It was in a big 3,500-seat auditorium. And then for the overflow in another auditorium seated 1,000, they had a closed-circuit TV. When my wife and I come to services here, 
She always sits right there, and I always sit right there. I like sitting in front because I don't want to miss anything. I did that in college. Except it was just me. So when they opened the doors, I would hustle down the, the, the aisle, and I would sit right there in the middle. I went to church every Sunday like this, looking straight up. Well, one Sunday, the preacher was the dean of men. And I don't remember the scripture he read. I do not remember topic of the sermon, but he said one thing that stopped me in my tracks, and it seems like yesterday that he said it. He said, a person believes something when he lives, when he acts, when he behaves like it's true. You believe something if you live like it's true. And also, if you don't believe it's true, you, that'll, be, that'll show up in your life too. For instance, when COVID first started, and the government giving all these warnings, there were people saying, oh, they're just overborn. And a lot of high school, college kids were saying that at the time. As a matter of fact, some college students and young adults, they would have COVID parties. And uh, they would have one person they know tested positive, and he would be at the party, and everybody would pay to go, and you'd go, and whoever else t tested positive for COVID next got the money. Well, a guy did it in Texas. I saw an interview with his nurse on ABC World News tonight. He got COVID, he got sick, he got sicker, he got sicker, he went in the hospital. And the last words he said before he died were, I think I made a mistake. Now we dare not make a mistake about believing who Jesus is. If we believe it, you know what'll happen? We'll live like it's true. Secondly, not only will we believe it, but we will trust him. Uh, we'll trust him for the things that we need. I mean, I, I've had, I can't, too long to tell you, so, but I've had things in my life that were just things I needed that there was no way I was going to get them, but I knew I was supposed to get, so I prayed, Lord, I need this, and it showed up, and I'm thinking, this is amazing. You'd almost think there's a God in heaven who really cares about me, which there is. But I can also trust him during the hard times. When we're here in the worship service, I sit there, Marilyn sits there, and something feels really strange. My son, Timothy, doesn't sit there. Now, Timothy was our son. He was born uh, with a prenatal stroke, which means um, he had a stroke before he was born. His left hand didn't work. It was like this. He was blind here. He could see there, blind there, see there. He never had a sense of taste, never had a sense of smell. Uh, did, you, did you show his picture? Show it again. That's him. And... Um, there are a lot of things he couldn't do. But, oh, everybody <coughs> loved him. I told him about a year and a half ago, I said, you know, when we've been to several churches, when we've left, they miss you more than me, which is really true. And you know what he would do? He would help us. He ran sound for me in kids' church every year. At camp, he ran the snack shop. He would get Maryland slides ready for her first and second grade things she would do. Uh, when people came to camp, he would be at the front desk receiving people. They wanted to make snack shop deposits. He would pray with parents who were having a problem. He loved senior citizens. Every Friday except during camp, he'd meet a bunch of senior citizens from our church at Chick-fil-A across the street, and they'd eat breakfast, he said, and they'd solve the problems of the world. They'd just talk and laugh. Every Thursday, he and I take our laptops to Panera. This was like 10 years. And we do all of our work there because I work well in noise. 
Um, when COVID hit last year, of course, we started staying home. He couldn't drive anywhere, but he would walk. Matter of fact, the house we got right across the street from the Galleria back there, he could walk the things from there. That's one reason we took the house. Well, on April 21st, a friend of ours had a birthday party. It was a lady, and so we figured, we knew they didn't have COVID, so we went over there, and, and the man, uh, Walter, took pictures of us, and it was great. We came home. Timothy hadn't had dinner. He made himself a peanut butter jelly sandwich, I remember. We sat and we watched Jeopardy, which we did every night. We recorded and skipped the commercials all through the day. And then Marilyn would sit here on the sofa, and he would say, night, Mom. He'd kiss her, and he went down. I said, night, night, T.T. Well, the next morning, uh, he got up. Marilyn is involved in a Zoom Bible study on Wednesday morning, so she was doing that in the dining room. And I was in my office working on my laptop, working on a book, and right behind me, there's double doors that go to his bedroom. Well, he got up, he uh, made his bed, got dressed, texted a friend, and when Marilyn called him for lunch, he didn't answer, so she said, go check on T.T. So I opened the door and said, T.T., and he was lying on the carpet. And to make a long story short, he had gone to be with the Lord. It looked like an angel took his hand, this is what it looked like, and said, Timothy, lie here, we're going home. That's exactly what it looked like. Well, we called 911, we, we gave him CPR, the whole thing, but of course, it was over. He had gone to be with the Lord. And as soon as they left, a, a sentence, a really strange but true sentence hit my mind. It was, okay, I know how this works. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. The basic truths of the gospel were going through my mind. The next week, God spoke to my heart, not with an outward voice, but he spoke to my heart. I hope he speaks to yours open it to him. And this is what I heard in my heart. He said, Herb, you've been a children's pastor, camp director all of your life. Thousands of parents have trusted their kids with you. Can you trust your son with me? And how do you answer that? Yes, Lord, I trust you. That's what we do. And the third thing that will happen is if we know the Lord, it will flow out of us. I'm not saying you'll just flow. I gotta go talk to that person. Well, you can do that, but it'll just flow out of you. Um, when you see people and they say, hey, uh, I'm having a problem. You know what you can do? You say, can I pray with you right now? Don't ever say I'll pray later. Pray with them there. Let me tell you something we've started. When we go to a restaurant that has a server, a waiter or a waitress, you know, we sit there, and Marilyn and I always split a meal. So they'll bring the menu and I'll give it to her so she can tell me what I'm hungry for. <laughs> she knows. And then the server will come take our menu and then I'll say this, every time, unless I forget, which sometimes I do, but I'll say, by the way, before we eat, we always thank the Lord for the food and we pray for our friends. How can we pray for you? Now I've only gotten one response where the guy froze and said, I'm good. <laughs> But usually people will think and they'll share something. Sometimes it's not very deep, but sometimes it is. I want to tell you about one. It's before we moved here, we lived in Northern Virginia, just across the river from DC. My son, Jonathan, who's children's pastor at Shades Mountain Community Church, where I used to be, he lived here. So he and his three girls and his wife met Marilyn, Timothy, and I on vacation in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And someone had given us a, a gift card for $100 at a chicken and waffle restaurant that was brand new. Well, I'm a 
waffle and bacon person myself, but I thought, well, I'll get the waffle. So we went there. There was a total of eight of us, so I thought, well, we can all eat up $100. So the sweet little waitress came, and she took their order, and we gave it. And then I looked at her, and I said, by the way, before she went back with the order, I said, uh, we always thank the Lord for the food before we eat, and we pray for our friends. How can we pray for you? By the way, you can do that. Nobody can do that. Well, her face froze, and she pulled up a chair and sat at the table. And she said, I'm mad with God. And I said, I'm sorry, tell me about it. Well, her son had gone back to El Salvador a couple weeks before, and he had been murdered while he was there. And the day before we were there, she got up, started a car to come to work, and her car wouldn't start. Everything was going wrong. And she was mad with God. And I said, man, let me tell you something. When you hurt, God hurts. When you're grieving, God's grieving. When you need something, God knows where you are, and he knows what you need. And he wants you to trust him. He'll go with you during the hard times. And, and, and he'll, he loves you more than you know. And then, instead of just praying with her, we got up. My son Timothy and Jonathan and I got up, and we put our hand on her back, and we prayed for her right in the restaurant in front of God and everybody. We said, Lord, comfort this lady and take care of her. She's having a hard time. Help her to see how much you love her and how much you want to take care of her. So, and then we stopped. You can never pray long if they're serving because they've got to go back to work. Well, she brought her food. And um, when it was time to go, we had eaten $100 worth of free food. And we had taken cash we had from somewhere, and we were using that to pay for things. And my wife and I had the same idea, and she went and got it for me. And I went to her, and I said, ma'am, I want you to take this $100 bill. This is what our meal would have cost us. But I want you to take this to remember. I want you to remember that God loves you, and he cares for you, and he wants to take care of you. And if you trust him, Jesus came for you, and he loves you so much, and you can count on him even when it's hard. Things like that happen if you, if, if you believe the gospel. Now, as far as doing it with the servers, you can do that. You may not give them $100. That was a once deal. But you can do that. When you see a neighbor saying they have a hard time, you can say, oh, can I pray with you right now? Nobody will say no. Let me review. Jesus is God. He came as God in flesh. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came because he loves us. He came to fulfill God's plan of redemption. And he lived a perfect life. He showed us who he is through his teachings, through his miracles, through his love. And, and first, in, in the book of Acts chapter 10, Peter described this way. He said, Jesus went about everywhere doing good. Well, I want that to be true of me. And because of that, God calls on you to believe it. And if you believe it, you'll live like it. And when you don't, you'll confess it and you'll fix it and you'll go back to living like it. Secondly, he wants you to trust him. Who else are you going to trust? And third, he wants us to let it overflow from our hearts so we can touch the lives of other people. That's the gospel we've been called to live. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love, and thank you for caring about us. And thank you that Jesus is who he said he is and who he showed us that he is. And thank you that we can trust him and that we get the privilege of doing what angels would love to do and share the gospel with others. So I pray for anybody here in this room who's having trouble right now. Help them to know how much you love them and how much you want to be with them and how much you care for them. 
And Lord, I pray you'll take care of us, that you'll help us to be a church of people who show the world who Jesus is by the way we live and the way we love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, maybe you're here today and you walked in as somebody that doesn't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And maybe God's speaking to your heart about that today. But I know probably most of us are here because we already kind of nailed that down. Most of us are probably facing the question, do I really trust him? It really spoke to my heart when Herb said what he sensed the Lord saying to him, that all these years, all these parents have trusted you with their children. Now the Lord was asking Herb and Marilyn to trust him with their son. Trust is a hard thing. And maybe you're at a place in your relationship with Christ this morning that you're really struggling to trust him. There's a great old hymn that says, Oh, for grace to trust you more. How many of you just would be honest enough today to say, Jesus, I do need to trust you more? Me too. And when our hearts are filled with that kind of trust and that kind of faith, Herb's absolutely right. It doesn't stay squished up in us. That kind of trust and that kind of faith just comes out. People see it, and they see the hope that we have in Jesus. So maybe today it means that we need to come before the Lord and say, God, I just want my heart to be more open. I want what you're doing in me to be seen by other people, not so they talk about what you're doing in me, just simply so they talk about you. And that they would believe that you also are going to do something in them.